Hei, it's your Kali. What's up? Warning, 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 warning. You are about to listen to facts, stories, interviews, gossip, and much more fascinating things that will be so stunning, there's a possibility that your mind will blow. This show will start five, four, three, two, one. Welcome guys, you guys are listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, broadcasting live from Studio Y, Yolokani, and Little Village. My name is Caesar, and today, um, this is season finale of season eight. Through this summer, Yolokali has worked alongside with City Bureau in writing stories about Little Village. In today's show, we are going to showcase every one of the students' written stories. So basically, every student um, here has partnered up with a City Bureau mentor, and they wrote a, star, a story about Little Village or a story within Little Village. So our first guest is Nine and Annie. Hi, I'm Nine. Hello, I'm Annie. Hey, Caesar. Hi. <laughs> uh, so our topic consists of um, my lovely neighbor, Rebecca Wolfram. And I decided to write um, a profile about her because um, she's a very interesting individual, but what caught my attention was her collaboration with um, Paul's organization and the um, CATS program that they have going on. Um, and Annie actually helped me a lot with the, with the process. We got to um, visit Rebecca in her home to interview her, and we got to explore like her beautiful home. She's really interesting. She's also an artist. Um, and she's really involved in the community, which is why I thought it was important for her to get acknowledged, um, not just because of who she is, but I'm pretty sure we can all learn from what she does in the community. Um, but yeah, uh, some of the research that I learned while doing this is that Rebecca's actually not um, the only person in the community that helps out stray cats. There's also other people who maintain cat colonies, which is what they're called, um, when you have like a crew of cats that you're taking care of in your own home. Um, and yeah, that's definitely important because we have a lot of stray cats in the community and it's important to help them um, stay around so they can help us with the rat population. You know, they're kind of ugly. Um, but yeah, some of the highlights was just like learning about all the other things that she does. Like she, she talked to us about a project that she did for the Museum of Mexican Art. Um, she did an ofrenda for the Day of the Dead, and her friend included. Um, it was basically dedicated for people who were not identified um, at the county morgue, and I think that also says a lot about who she is. Um, she cares about a lot of things that people don't seem to like really care about. And I noticed that through the friend, I mean, that, that was really touching that like, she commemorated these people that, you know, um, were not identified and she acknowledged that they were still, they were still somebody here. Um, also, we learned about, she has a museum in her, in her front porch. 
um, it's called the Museum of Objects Left on the Sidewalk. And the museum has um, a lot of like, uh, it's a display of like toxic things in, in the neighborhood. Like um, at some point I remember seeing like uh, those containers of like uh, oil or gasoline. And she gave us a really cool story when we interviewed her about um, a shoe that she was gifted from the Heidelberg Project. Um, and she actually told us about her conflict between displaying the shoe and in her home and making an installation for it in the community. And this just goes to show like she's very detailed about anything that she's involved with. Um, I feel like it's important to be detailed with things that like just seem like random things, you know. Um, but yeah, with this being said, like I really, I really hope to when I have my own home to like be able to help stray animals, not just cats. Hopefully, we can find a way through this process to be able to help other um, stray animals, even the ones that we don't consider stray, like squirrels and raccoons. I mean, they matter too. Um, you also have a really good story about feeding stray squirrels. <laughs> yeah, which is why it, like Rebecca caught my attention a lot because when I was younger, I used to feed squirrels off my hand. Um, I don't know if it was because I was so innocent that they were so like willing to come up to me. I would just like um, get my peanut butter and a cookie and you know give it to them. And one time a squirrel bit me and I thought I was gonna get rabies. But she she didn't bite me, or he, she, I don't know, whatever it was, didn't bite me, like, with a bad intention. It was just that the cookie was right on my finger, and I thought it was the cookie. Um, but, yeah, like, that's another reason why Rebecca caught my attention, because I, uh, I care for animals a lot. You know, when we used to have our full house in um, Midway, I used to house, like, stray animals, like dogs, and I would try to rehome them or find their homes. So I, I think that... Humans are not the only important thing in society. Animals are pretty important as well. But yeah, um, if you guys have time to check out um, the PAWS website, there's a lot more information um, about how you can get involved even if you can maintain a cat colony at home. Um, also, the article is going to touch up on some of those things as well. And yeah, I hope you guys um, enjoy reading that about Rebecca and you will sort of learn a little bit about myself as well in the article. Yeah, you should check it out. Nine spent a lot of time on it, and she did a really great job. Thank you. And then we got a clip of a little bit of the interview with Rebecca. Can you introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Rebecca Wolfram, W-O-L-F-R-A-M. I live in Little Village, and I'm an artist. I've lived here about 22, 23 years, just south of Douglas Park. So how did you get involved with um, the cats? So I think it was about 10 years ago, I, I had, there were always cats coming around and they were also killing the rats and I didn't really um, have a particular relationship with these cats. Um, but I think it was two young siblings that kept hanging around on my back porch and I started feeding them. They seemed, they didn't seem like feral cats, they seemed very friendly and wanting to come in, which I didn't let them come in. And 
uh, they were they were young and they were finally I, I contacted someone I think that was how it started but I, I ended up contacting someone who introduced me to the whole idea of the trap neuter release and that the organization PAUSE does that in this area. And they, I got into contact with a neighborhood woman who was very, very involved in it. She was um, spent like almost all her free time trapping cats, getting them neutered, even not just in her own area. She would go out and, and, and do it, you know, outside of her, her particular backyard. Um, so she helped me trap these two cats in particular, and she actually took it upon herself to... I wasn't really prepared to... Um, she, wanted, she thought she could get them adopted through PAWS, and in fact she did. Um, but to do that, they have to be kept in somebody's home for, I forget what it is, eight weeks or something. I wasn't ready to do that, but she did it. And uh, then, in fact, um, they did get adopted, which was great. Um, and that sort of sort of galvanized me, and she sort of inspired me to, to think like, well, here's all these other cats coming, you know, maybe I need to start doing this. So I've learned about how you get the trap, the, 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 the feral cats um, for paws to, to neuter them, they have to be um, they have to be brought in in an official trap. So, which normally you, you can rent it from Paws. For me, I don't have a car, so it was always logistically challenging getting these cats to Paws because you have to do it very early in the morning, drop them off, and then you have to go pick them up later in the afternoon. You have to keep them overnight to recover from the surgery, and then release them. And then you're responsible for feeding these cats. And I also ended up getting some of these things called feral, feral villa, little houses that are designed for feral cats. And I have three of them now in my backyard. And they're extremely well designed. Um, in the wintertime, the cats stay perfectly warm and cozy. And uh, so they, they've been a big help. Um, so every time I would trap a cat, I would have to make arrangements with somebody or rent a car or, or have a friend come, uh, but it always worked out. Up next, we have Erisa, Emmanuel, and Sephora. Hello, what up, y'all? So my name's Emmanuel, and I'm a student for Y'all Kali and Your Story Your Way. Uh, the title of my article is From Panda to Panda, and it's mainly about um, uh, just pretty much the role that uh, culture plays in our communities and in Chicago in general, and mainly uh, since culture is such a big and broad topic, I wanted to mainly focus on the food that is in everybody's culture. So um, my mentor was Arissa. Hello, Arissa. Hi, my name is Arissa. Uh, and do you want to say how hard it was dealing with me throughout this process? False. Was not hard at all. It's been a pleasure. Uh, okay. Research. I, um, I went around and interviewed a couple of people. I interviewed innocent civilians in the community and also 
business owners, pop, like popular businesses in our community, mainly 26th Street, because it's the main street in uh, Little Village. Uh, y'all have to read to find out who those people is. And yeah. You don't want to tease them? You don't want to give them a little tease of what it is? Do you want to give a hint? A California rule, y'all. Okay. Uh, well, actually, you're going to find out when you hear my interview. So it was a sushi owner, dude. Uh, yeah, in 26th Street. It actually tastes pretty good from what my bosses say. Um, the importance of my theme. I, I didn't really want to add any of my opinions into the article, which I'm, I'm actually still in the writing stages, so my article's not even done yet. Um, but what I, I don't want to really add any of my personal opinions. I just mainly, at the end of my article, I want uh, the people who read it to walk away and start a conversation about um, what they think about our community and, in my case, uh, food-wise. And do you want to make a change? Do you enjoy how it is? And, yeah, just, like, talk about it with other people. And, Yeah. Any highlights of the process? What, what's been your favorite part? My favorite part? Um, I'd say going out and, um, and interviewing people because I actually got some really interesting responses. Like some people I didn't expect to say things. And also like I went to go interview people from SIP22 and I got free coffee. That was good. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it's just been really good. I accidentally lost uh, one of... Uh, the top parts for Steph's recorder. Sorry, Steph. I'll buy you one later. But <laughs> don't worry. I found it on Amazon. But yeah, uh, I, I'd say just the interactive part, going out and seeing people's opinions from the community, was my favorite part about it. And working with Arissa and eating Oreos. Totally. And that so working with the being in the community was the cool part. And that's what we're gonna play for people today. We're gonna play part of that audio clip. Right? Do you want to yes. tell people a little bit about what they're going to hear? Um, so you're going to hear one of the um, main business owners that I interviewed. He's, uh, his name is Jay, and he is a co-owner for a sushi spot on 26th Street. So hopefully I think it's a great interview and you're full after. So, yeah. Well, the establishment one yeah. first, yeah. So are you the business owner? Uh, yeah. There's, I have a partner as well. Yeah. Yes. So could you explain just what this business is? Sure. Uh, so basically it's a sushi restaurant, but we incorporate some you know, like, uh, peppers, spices, and different concepts borrowed from, say, like a Mexican restaurant, like the sushi burritos. We do uh, these poke tostadas. Um, but that's basically it. At the end of the day, it's, it's just sushi with a little bit of Latin influence. So, uh, what kind of foods do you like? Are what community are you from? Wait, my, like neighborhood? Where do you live? I, I live in Hyde Park. Hyde Park. So, what kind of foods do you like buy or eat? And like personally? Personally, um, I guess predominantly Asian, Asian cuisine. Is there stuff Chinese. that you eat from the community here? Little from village? here? Yeah, when we, so when we were doing the construction, we started last uh, September, so pretty much September through all through December, we just kind of went down and tried a whole bunch of the restaurants. Uh, and what yeah. made you guys decide to build your location here? Uh, to be honest, we found the uh, the real estate 
like released online first, and then we actually kind of built menu and the concept around the location. So we didn't actually initially have the concept, and then we were looking at Little Village. We just found the uh, uh, what it, like a commercial real estate site, and the rent was kind of like what we're looking for. So once we found the spot, then we built the concept around that. And the Latin infusion that is. Yeah. So Okay. So does that help you with like your branding and you think within this community? I'd like to think so. But <laughs> we're still growing, so we'll we'll see how it goes. Why do you think that like your business is growing so fast? You know what? I would say because it's just one uh, additional option. Because I mean, there's plenty of Mexican restaurants, right? There's only like one Chinese restaurant, and uh, there was no sushi. And these days, sushi is not so much like an exotic food anymore. Pretty much everyone, especially the younger generation, they eat sushi. So I think just us being really the only sushi option in, in the vicinity helps us out a lot. Oh yeah, uh, could we get your name and what you where you work? Uh, Jay, and this is Sora Tamakiria. All right, that was a clip from Emmanuel and Tareen, the sushi guy. Um, we still have Arisa here, but this time, Sephora is going to be talking about her topic or her article. So you can go ahead. Hi. <laughs> My name is Sephora. I'm a student of Hiola Kali, the Your Story, Your Way program. Um, the title of my article is, I just blanked. <laughs> okay. It's Building Through Love, the Story of Miguel Mendoza. So it's about Miguel Mendoza. He's a contractor in Little Village. How I originally like came across him, I was actually doing a radio show, and a segment of my radio show had to do with elderly people. He's not really old, but he's, yeah. <laughs> um, so I just saw him on the street, and I decided to interview him really quick, and his just story was really, really powerful, and I was really inspired by that little interview that I did that I decided to do my article on it. Um, the research was actually pretty basic. I only had to interview one person, so we just followed up and did another interview um, that was more in-depth and detailed, and we took a little bit more time, and yeah. Um, the importance of the theme is just, um, just like seeing how people interact with Little Village on a personal level. And I remember a couple summers ago, one of our projects was to go out and interview random people. And that project just like really resonated with me because there's so many people on the street that like you don't know anything about. And just to have that chance to be able to hear from them and hear what they have to say, and maybe they didn't really have the chance to ever say it before, was just really important to me to be able to just like share his story. Yeah. Can I ask you what do you feel like is like the best part of um, your work? Like this, this was a new thing for you, like writing this piece for Little Village Portal, yeah. right? What What did you take away that you that you really like and enjoy from the process? Honestly, it probably wasn't even anything that he said, but it was probably just that because his English wasn't fluent, and I know that that was like kind of an, a little issue in the beginning of the process and just the interview, but once we got over that, like it flowed a little bit better. But it's probably that when a story is strong enough, like that language barrier like doesn't really do anything. 
because I know that um, sometimes like there was some confusion and everything, but just like the strength of his story and just like his story that like he was telling, um, it didn't really matter. Like that barrier didn't matter. And we ended up just like pushing through that and being able to share his story. That's amazing. What about, and not necessarily specifically with um, Miguel Mendoza, but the process of writing this article, like what was the most frustrating part for you? And how did you push through to get it done? Um, honestly, maybe just like doing everything in order. Because like right after the interview, I just went in and I started just like typing like the first couple paragraphs. And then I was like, wait, actually, I'm supposed to like transcribe like the interview first. So I had to just like stop what I was doing and go back. And just because like there were so many things like I want to say and I knew that I was going to like forget it if I didn't just like put it out there. So it's kind of like hard for me to actually like do things step by step just because I really get ahead of myself. So um, and I just did it like my own way. Like after a certain time, I just gave up and I was like, whatever, I'm just gonna write it and I'm just gonna transcribe it later and go back and just like do it again. And yeah, it ended up working out, but I just kind of did it my own way. Yeah. Totally. Should we hear part of the interview? Yeah. So what's your name? My name is Miguel Mendoza. I grew up in Guanajuato, Mexico working uh, with my fathers. It was a little difficult for me those days. I was real poor, uh, real poor guy. And then um, I don't have, a, I grew up without toys. Um, but I was so happy because we have many things to, to do. All my best, can they give it to little Billy's all the, all the things I know, uh, I like to show people. Whatever it is in, uh, in my life, whatever I learn, I like to show everybody, and they can grow up. Uh, it's not necessary to be, I, like I explain everybody, it's not necessary to be a, a painter when you grow up, or to be a plumber, or to be an a electrician. The important thing is uh, try to learn something uh, different uh, you need in, the, in your future. For some reason, I came over here because I found um, the new generations. Is some people they have drugs or alcohol, whatever. I, I like to talk to them and try to help in, uh, in whatever I, uh, I can do. And I have many young guys uh, working with me, try to learn like uh, a little electricity, a little about painting, and um, whatever it is. I like to show everybody uh, all the things I know. How long do you think you'll be doing this for? For how long? I think for the rest of my life. Hello, I'm Alec, future luchador legend. Um, and sitting beside me is my mentor. I'm Bia. I am a civic reporting fellow from City Bureau, working on alternative courts and judges. And my topic is about um, lucha libre and masks. Um, and uh, what's the name of your story? Behind the mask, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> it's always changing, <laughs> but I'm going with behind the mask. Okay, what's it about? Um, my story is about um, well, going back to lucha libre um, and the masks. How masks are important in Latino culture. Okay, and so what kind of process did you do to get this story? Um, well, at first it started out as an idea for another uh, topic, 
and then um, what happened was it just didn't fit in with that certain topic, so it became it became something else. It became <laughs> the whole lucha libre um, topic became the whole entire episode. So um, I was very surprised with that, and then uh, um, I got the chance to interview two wrestlers. Okay, cool. Where are they? Who are they? One was um, a legend, um, Discovery. He's he wrestled in AAA. Um, a lot of people know him. He's very he's popular here in, in, in Little Village and Pilsen um, among the community. And then the other is DJZ, uh, who is who is a, also a big wrestler. Uh, a lot of people know him. He wrestles in Impact Wrestling. Okay, cool. How how those interviews go? What did you think? It went it went um it went very good. Um, I enjoyed uh, Discovery and uh, and um, and DJZ. Um, I was very surprised to get these interviews, um, especially with the both of them. I would never have expected, like, myself, like, I, I never expected um, in my life to interview two big name wrestlers, um, including one I, the, because I watch, I, I watch DJZ um, career on TV. Yolo helped you get to actually meet them and talk to them. That's so cool, right? Yeah, I, um, <laughs> you know it's so funny. It's like I, um, I, I never, I have never thought about doing a whole entire episode about lucha libre, my passion. Um, and it's uh, also lucha libre has really connected, helped me connect it to my roots, and um, because I was born in a, in a, in a suburb, suburban house, um, I am Latino, I am Mexican. But we were, I was never really taught about my heritage. and So how did Lucha help that? Um, you know, one of the things that helped me with, with, with Lucha Libre was um, it helped me kind of like sp speak Spanish a little bit, but it also helped me about the culture. Um, mm -hmm. Lucha Libre is filled with so much culture. Uh, the masks um, aren't so important. Some people wear the masks, um, and, uh, and their designs are either about like their... They're where they came from, a tribe, um, and uh, or a Mexican spiritual animal. Okay. Did you get to see like DJZ's or Discovery's mask while you interviewed them? Uh, DJZ does not wear masks. What? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Discovery, he does. Um, I think the mask was like it was it was yellow. It was gold. I forgot. I sort of forgot how his mask. Sometimes mask, sometimes changes. Okay, cool. So what do you think, why is this story important to Little Village? Um, the whole story, I think masks in general, I think are important to the Latino community. Um, that was the other thing that I wanted to touch on um, in this article I was writing about, that I'm still writing about. <laughs> um, the masks are what makes the message kind of more powerful. Um, and the they represent the 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 they also represent the message as well, um, or or a certain topic like I, I read that in 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 a in a Mexican in, in an article um, the protest of the forty three students getting kidnapped and uh, by the police um, a lot of the protesters were wearing masks of the students mm -hmm. to express like their to express their anger and where are these students like what did you do with these students. Uh, a lot of them were also wearing masks of skulls, um, and some were. Uh, there was other another protest where um, a bunch of 
Latinos are angry at Trump and they're wearing Trump masks <laughs> uh, to express their hatred of Trump. There you go. That's cool. Um, so what do you think was one of the highlights of this whole process for you? One of the highlights? Um, I, I, I guess one of the highlights was, was uh, getting close to or learning a lot about myself um, doing this project and also interviewing two of my favorite <laughs> wrestlers. Um, I can, th that was the biggest highlights. I, don't, I think those were the two biggest highlights. Dope, so why don't you set up this clip that we have? Oh yeah, it's uh, with DJ Z. My name is Michael Paris. I wrestle as DJ Z. DJ Z, well, I am a DJ. That's uh, my background, that's another passion of mine. And at some point we decided to just bring this real life interest of mine into wrestling, my other passion kind of combine the two, so DJ Z is what you get. He's an electronic music DJ, he's high energy, he's a master of crowd control, and I bring that all to the squared circle. The same energy, the same, uh, I consider myself a professional, I can do anything that you want. You want me to be a bad guy, I can be a bad guy, I can be a good guy, I can be a manager, I can talk, whatever the situation may be, I can do it. Lately, I'm a good guy, a technical in Lucha Libre, most of the time these days. When I was a kid, I always wanted to be either a rock star or a professional wrestler and I discovered that I can't sing and if there weren't already people playing guitar I would think it's physically impossible to do so it was at that point that I decided I should probably find a wrestling school and try my luck at wrestling. <laughs> I'd say I have an interest in the more technical side of wrestling as I'm getting older and my body is breaking down due to my reckless style of wrestling so something that's a little bit easier on the body like a British technical style. If I could implement some elements of that to kind of like lessen the damage on my body, that would be great. Uh, I'm here today to get some more training with Lucha Libre, just because the guy that runs these classes, Discovery, he's a legend in Lucha Libre. He's incredible in the ring, incredible teacher. And I trained with him two years ago and it was probably like a turning point for me. It helped me like kind of uh, break a plateau that I was at and got me out of my comfort zone really helped with my confidence and, and my conditioning. And uh, I'm here at this point in my career, I have five months left on my Impact Wrestling contract. Whether or not I will resign with them, I'm not sure. I may want to search for other opportunities, whether that's WWE or Japan, who knows what it is. But I'd like to be at uh, peak condition when that time comes. So that's why I'm here and there's no better man to help me get there than Discovery. Uh, it's been a long road, I've had a lot of injuries. Uh, there's very little to show for it. it. It would be nice if there were health benefits for wrestlers because it's a really dangerous sport. If contracted professional wrestlers had some sort of insurance, it'd be a big help. It'll probably never happen, but uh, yeah, considering how dangerous it is, yeah, I think that would be a pretty essential element to add to the mix. So yeah, I'd say I wish we all had some kind of health. And we're back. Um, my name is Caesar, and you're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, broadcasting live from Studio Y, Yolokali, and Little Village. Um, this is the season finale of season eight, and through the summer, Yolokali has worked alongside with City Bureau, um, writing stories about Little Village. Um, in today's show, you're going to we're going to showcase um, every itch and every one of the students written stories. So basically every one of the students partnered up with one of the city bureau mentors to write a story about Little Village or a story within Little Village. Um, so right now we have um, Camila and Sarah and they're gonna talk about their article. Hey guys, I'm Camila. I'm Sarah. 
And um, me and Sarah worked on a piece in, uh, for the portal for Little Village, and it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think we, I don't know if we ever talked about this, but I feel like one thing we learned is we both love food. We both love we food. Do. Yeah. We, we were just watching those videos on YouTube. What were we watching? Um, mukbangs. <laughs> <laughs> Which I didn't know what one was. No, you didn't know what mukbangs were. You, were. Know. you know what ASMR were? Yeah, I did know that. The pickle video. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's so good. What... We said we both love food, but how does that relate to what we worked on together this summer? So, um, I know Leon, the place that I chose to do a profile on, um, holds a very deep place in my heart because I've been going there ever since I was a little baby, you know, fresh out the womb, I would go. (laughs) And um, it's the owners and, like, a lot of the servers that – that still work there today um know me you know they watched me grow up they're like it's like a second family well a third family because like yo god he's the second but yeah (laughs) it's like you know and that's why i called it a home away from home because it's noleon it kind of like takes just the all around like just the feeling that you get there feels cozy and at home like all the servers are very friendly it doesn't really feel like you're it's just any restaurant it feels like you're at your abuelita's house and like there's murals that decorate the whole restaurant and it's like you feel like you're back in mexico which could be home or you feel like you're with family which is also considered home so that's why i chose to name it a home away from home yeah i feel like you did a really good job at capturing how this restaurant's like a part of the community it's like a community institution so like the whole process of this me and Sarah, we kind of procrastinated a whole bunch. We did, to be real. We really did, because we both, like, get off track very easily. We do, because we like talking about things. I know. Yeah. But we got it done. <laughs> Surprisingly, we got it done on time, because we also wanted to do a photo essay, since I do photography, so... Yeah. I included photos um, about Novo Leon, and then, like, you know, the writing was what killed us a bit. Because yeah. we were like, okay, now we got the pictures, now we have to write and, like, transcript the whole thing. And I was like, mm, do we have to? Yeah. So my question to you is, like, why was Nuevo Leon visually interesting? Because it ended up being, like, a photo essay paired with quotes mm-hmm. from customers and, like, the family that runs Nuevo Leon? I feel like it's really important to capture the whole thing because you need to you need to know why it feels like home. You get me? Like, there's murals, like I said, that decorate the whole place. There's fresh salsa that is there every... Like, fresh salsa is made every single day, which shows, like, how much they care about your cus- about the customers. Um, You know, sh- the owner, she mentioned that, you know, Laura mentioned... Laura Gutierrez mentioned that um, that it's a family-run restaurant, right? So they're always present. They're wiping tables. They're, you know, talking to customers. They're having conversations. They're, 
you know, constant, they have like generations and generations of like customers and family that have come and like, it's like so crazy how, you know, an establishment can have so much like more meaning than just a restaurant. Yeah. And I think we can't like go without talking about their beans. Their beans. Oh my gosh. <laughs> their beans. Ever since I remember, like, till this day, when we went for my mom's birthday, right? Till this day, I still prefer. So they bring you a taco, right? A little taco, right? A little appetizer, if you will. And it's um basically just like. You know, there's meat, and for kids, there's, like, the beans, right? I always get the beans. I don't care about the meat. I always get the beans. And one quote that me and Sarah loved so much was that we babysit our beans. Yes. They're not something that you can make in an hour. It's something you have to, like, you know, be cautious about. And I'm like... We did love that quote. I feel like we learned about the cultural, like, heritage of their beans, too. Like, where the recipe comes from Mm. remember what she said about how like the beans they all taste the same in in nuevo leon yeah so it's like so it's like really like important to kind of include that because like every city in mexico is different you know they're all known for different things and she told us that nuevo leon is known for their you know their tortillas their flour tortillas which are also really good and their beans right so we needed to include that in it and i feel like nuevo leon is really important because we also interviewed many other customers and they felt like it was home this one table really surprised us that it was just like four friends right and they're just like they go there every single week and they always want that one server they're one server, right? They always go there. They try everything. They love the place. You know, the the dad, the dad of the establishment, you know, if you will, the, also the owner, he said, like, okay, you guys have to interview this table. And we're like, but they're eating. And he's like, you need to interview this table. And then they were just talking about, like, how much the place means to them and how it's, like, you know, a second home for them, how everybody's so nice, how it's all very, like, family-oriented. And it's like... I just needed to include Nuevo León because I feel like Nuevo León is like a big, important stamp in Little Village. It's made its like mark in the neighborhood, definitely. Yeah, I feel like they were kind of a reflection that a restaurant can be more than just a business. It can become like a part of people's everyday life and mm-hmm. kind of symbolize a neighborhood. It really does. And, like, just the overall story about how the place, you know, came upon is, like, really interesting. And it's, like, something that I feel like should be made out of a movie because it's, like, so inspiring how you can just come from, like, you know, how you can just come to America and just, like, make your dream a reality, right? It really captures, like, how she said, the American dream. Yeah. And it's so great. So for you guys to hear this amazing story, here is the interview. Um, I guess just before you start, if you could say like your name and how you spell it and your age and where you live. My name's Laura Gutierrez Ramos. Laura, L-A-U-R-A, Gutierrez, G-U-T-I-E-R-R-E-Z, Ramos, R-A-M-O-S. I am 46 years old and I live in countryside. I actually spend more of my time here in the little village though. Cool. Started the business and the establishment in what year? My father, Emeterio Gutierrez, 
His first name is spelled as E-M-E-T-E-A-R-I-O, Gutierrez, G-U-T-I-E-R-R-E-Z. Started in the Napoleon restaurant in the Little Village, September 6, 1977. Did you start at a specific location or in a different establishment? My father grew up in the restaurant business. Well, actually, my father is one that say they could, my grandparents, let's start, completed the American dream. My father was uh, became a U.S. president when he was turned when he turned 12. He arrived in Waukegan, and they worked it here and everything. Went to school here, not knowing at that time any English. They learned because at that time they didn't have any bilingual programs in schools. So they went to school here. They learned English at school. They struggled, of course. Waukegan, they, they were about a year and a half to two, and then they moved over to Morgan Street. At that time, my grandparents were offered the location in Pilsen, 1515 West 18th Street, which now actually burned down three years ago almost. Um, Grandma used to work the soup kitchen to put them in the old St. Pat's downtown, the school. And then she worked the kitchen also at uh, Holy Name Cathedral High School. That's where we went to high school. But they were out, when they opened the restaurant in Pilsen in 1962, they were working there. You know, they, everybody had a, something to do there. They lived there at the restaurant on top. Was your dad working, like helping them when he was a kid? They grew up in the restaurant business. So this is why he, he opened this for 1977. All right, you guys just heard um, Camila's, uh, Camila's interview with Nova Leon. And now we have Melissa and Arabella. Uh, my name is Melissa. And my name's Arabella, and I'm a City Bureau Fellow, and I had the honor of working with Melissa this summer. Uh, so what story did you end up choosing? You had a lot of ideas, but what one did we end up going with? Uh, I ended up going with one that profiled Epifanio Monardes. It was about street art, and I chose that because going into like this neighborhood, like I noticed a lot of murals, and a lot of these murals have a lot of like indigenous, how do you say it, like indigenous aesthetics of it? Mm -hmm. And all these murals have like resonate throughout the community, which is like predominantly Mexican. So yeah, I chose I chose this. Yeah. yeah, and you chose the subject of the profile you did because of his like style of art, right? I chose the style of art, and also because he grew up in this community, and I feel like he could um, really like provide this like accurate insight in like the evolution of street art in this community. Yeah. Yeah, because what you wanted to look at was, like, the history of street art in Little Village, right? Yeah, the history and how, like, certain trends change or, like, um, evolve again. Yeah. And, like, what did the artist that you talked to say about how street art has changed in Little Village since he, like, became an artist? He says that um, the mural street art is, like, it's become more of uh, taken seriously. It's, like, more appreciated now in this neighborhood. And also he mentioned that, that like art specifically, it like shelters you from like the gang violence here and a lot of, um, how do you say, like the negative aspects here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you got a lot out of your interview. So what was it like to prepare for that interview and like write the questions and everything? Um, the questions, like my main goal was to make more like an impact and like, how do you say, it resonate more with him and like his experience growing up in this neighborhood and like, yeah, that's basically. Mm -hmm. And you had like a lot of, you, you like in your interview, when we went back and listened to it, you like followed up on different things that he said. So how were you able to kind of like come up with questions on the spot for him? 
Mm, basically, like his answering, if he mentioned something like that was like I don't know, like really stood out, then I would like ask him again and ask him to explain himself or like what he thought that meant. Mm-hmm. And from that interview. What did you learn about interviewing and how sometimes <laughs> interviewing can be hard? Interviewing is, like, hard. It's yeah. hard. Yeah. Yeah. And especially, like, if you want a certain thing, people might not give you it. Yeah. Yeah. And rambling. Yeah, <laughs> rambling. <laughs> rambling. Um, and so what was, like, something that you took away from the story that you ended up writing that you, like, learned about street art or learned about the history of street art? Like, what I learned was, like, that a lot of these artists or like specifically him they um capture a lot of like his art like through the people in the neighborhood whatever like he witnesses he like um chooses to express it through his art and like it really fits in with the neighborhood and it's really symbolic inside the neighborhood yeah yeah and you went out and you got some photos with camila of his his art right so what did you think of the art that you saw in the community that says um, a lot of it had like an indig- indigenous feel. A lot of it, um, how do you say, spoke out to a lot of positivity, and like chose to, I don't know, like like basically make it more positive. Positive, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, did you want to share some of your interview with him, with everyone else? Yeah. Do you think murals and street art in general connect people with their culture? I think yeah. If executed properly street art can totally connect you to your culture it depends on like of course the message and and of course um like the imagery but i think that yeah it can totally connect has it connected you with your culture um yes it has um some of the artwork that i've been extremely inspired with is by an artist called el mac um he's from california and he does huge murals but what he does is he focuses on people from the area so he's actually depicting the culture of the area so to me that's extremely interesting why is street art in little village important to you um street art in in this area of little village is extremely important to me because graffiti in general is one of the only art forms that is not censored and that is extremely important because a lot of times it portrays what's happening politically or just what's happening in in today's day and age and there's a lot of art nowadays that doesn't do that how does uh street art show and inform people in the community well through the imagery um, of course but at the same time i feel like the artist sometimes needs to have somewhat of a relationship with the community because um not everybody's gonna get it and art could always be subjective, you know. I think it's important for the artist to have a a relationship with the community or wherever they did it so that they can have an open dialogue and kind of talk about what their perspective or what it is that they're portraying in their art. And we're back. Um, Up next, we have Jenny and Sajidi. Well, hey, guys. I'm Jenny, and this is Sajida. Hello. Uh, We're going to talk about my story. Uh, I think Sajida has some questions. Yes, so can you tell us a little bit about what your story is about and what made you passionate about it? Well, I wrote this story because I was really interested in a mural that was on 26th Street and Karlov, and it says, Demuestre su cultura no tira basura, and I was just impressed by it because it was, the colors were really vibrant, and uh, they were pretty much primary colors. They were green and um, yellow, and it just gave, like, fresh look to the community, so... I was interesting to talk about this because it was tacked over, uh, gang related. 
um, members, and yeah, I just wanted to knew like the whole story behind the back, uh, behind the mural, like the background of the mural, how it started, like mm-hmm. if it was a mo- movement or something. So. Yeah, and I think what was cool was that we never really think about the message behind murals and like why it was created. And as for your story, you found out that it was a call to action mural. Um, and can you talk about the environment and all that that you learned? Yeah, well, I learned that the SSA um, had to do with this um, mural, and what they wanted it was to make like create awareness for the community to not litter and not um, just throw garbage on the floor, especially when it's like when we have big things in the community like the Maxim Parade. And uh, Josue mentioned that Elena Duran, um, the com- commissioner commissioner of uh, of SSA had this idea because she saw the word the muestras de cultura no tira basura in a trash can and she just thought it was really uh, powerful and she just created it um, a movement an initiative and now like in Little Village the whole red uh, trash cans that you see on 26th Street say the phrase the muestras de cultura no tira basura and it's well it's it enriches like the community a lot yeah and I think um, what was really cool is that Jenny was like doing some investigative work to find out like who the artist was and then she when she finally found him she was able to get his opinions on why he created uh, the mural and also how he felt about it being tagged over and I think that was like an emotional thing for him to talk about and um, it kind of just related to this overarching issue that we all know that affects the city of Chicago and that's gangs and violence and like all that. But then you also interviewed um, Jesus, right? Yeah, and I also interviewed Jesus Salazar, which he is, uh, he works with the NASA and he does all these things with cure violence too. So he like incorporates um, cure violence into NASA and to the community, especially because here in Little Village, like we have Two of the like most active, well, well, the two active gangs here are uh, the Latin Kings and the Two Six. So it's um, it's really really bad here in Little Village because we have the borders, the uh, uh, borders that are in between these two gangs, and they're always disputing over territories. And what Jesus was saying was he was mentioning about another look into into why um, gangs actually tag on murals without being it, uh, making it be in their pro- uh, like territory or making it look like, oh, well, we are the two sex and like this is like our, our uh, territory. territory. So he was mentioning that maybe like we have like some connections, like um, incorporate them into like what they're doing, let them know, like, oh, we're doing this, uh, do you guys want to join in, or maybe just, like, have more, um, just an open mind with them. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting. I think we were both surprised by that quote, just saying, like, yes, they are part of the community regardless, so maybe we should include them into these important discussions of, like, we want to beautify our community as opposed to have all these tags on them, and maybe just have this discussion as opposed to just separating ourselves from them, um, which was interesting, and it's like another look into the other side of things. Um, yeah, um, yeah. they were both mentioned to have more uh, organizations that have like things uh, that 
is like related to art as in like yo locali also i mentioned like there's more there has to be more of like these organizations here and um here in little village and also in like low-income communities as well so i thought it was really important for them for him to say because as like youth uh sometimes low-income communities don't have those type of resources and which one was your favorite interview to conduct my favorite interview was with Josue. The artist? Yeah, the artist, like the muralist. He was really cool. And that, actually, that's the clip that you guys are going to hear uh, in just a few seconds. Okay, cool. Let's let them hear it then. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Hope you guys enjoy it. My name is Josue Aldana, and I am a full-time muralist. Elena Duran is a SSA commissioner, and she was just enamored by the slogan that was um, painted on, on just the bin, on the trash bin out there. She was like, I want this to be sort of the slogan of uh, environmental protection or any of that um, language that was being used. And they wanted to be translated into a mural. Well, I was still young. I think that was like, what, a senior in high school. The mural was done. And, um, but then after that, we did a lot of... Um, um, there was a lot of bureaucracy, there was a lot of paperwork, and, and, and somehow Nilda wanted this, this vision of the Mosesu Cultura no Tire Basura before parade. Uh, they wanted the deadline to be done by September. And so, and comenzó la jornada. And then, like, embarré toda la pared, we're at this where it's like now you see uh, along the corridor, the 2060 corridor, where you have the, these red trash bins. Of the initiative that the SSA spearheaded of the Muestra Cultura No Tire Basura to just sort of identify and deal with a lot of the uh, just the impact of what plastic waste does and also just regular trash and what, why that makes our community look, you know, not as pretty or not as or just the beautified spaces. What we were trying to do is um, look at the situation of garbage and green spaces and what those things could be going to have been identified. And so I thought those were the right um, choice of words to use for that particular mural. And I feel like it was really catchy and it rhymed and, mm -hmm. and Elena thought it rhymed too. So we, so it just kind of stuck. So the Muestas de Cultura and Diego Basura was like, was more of a general consensus. And so we kind of went with that and it was really cool. We did a piece, like a really quick throw up, but other than that, I felt like we didn't even touch that the Muestas de Cultura no Tire Basura because it's just, it was just there. And I felt that mural was just so iconic to the efforts of the SSA. I didn't even want to touch it because I thought it was mm -hmm. just like this, mural that uh, the enrichment of of that slogan and just to kind of see if it if if it catches on and, and it caught on in a way and uh, yeah but I felt that it's a lot of it comes from negligence and up and maintaining the law on my part and las circunstancias de viviendo en la vida y esas cosas que que se deben de estar activadas en una forma como intervención de más programas como yo, espacios públicos y que para que no para que no estén pintando um, pendejería y media de pandillas sino pues algo que es, tenga mucha integridad y, y algo que es pulido y, y hermoso como nuestra cultura we're very well, I felt those things are, are very important to be addressed like you know like that wall on 26 and Carlos hi guys 
Hi guys, we're back. Um, my name is Caesar, and you're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 Lumpen Radio. Um, broadcasting live from Studio Y, Yolakali and Little Village. Today is um, Yolakali season finale of season eight, and through this summer, Yolakali has worked alongside with City Bureau in writing stories about Little Village. Um, in today's show, you are going to showcase uh, every. We're going to showcase every one of the students' written stories. Um, Every one of the students here has partnered up with a city bureau mentor and written a story about Little Village or a story within Little Village. So now we have um, Lizette and Marley. Hi, I'm Lizette. Hi, I'm Marley. I'm a reporting fellow with City Bureau. Yeah, and I'm the student in training. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Lizette, why don't you tell us a little bit about the topic of your article? So on the top of my article is about this um, um, archi archive recording, which is called Numero Uno. And basically what they do is that they pre-release songs that are from like the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, and they let the whole world hear it once more again. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the process of, of writing an article? It was a very long process, <laughs> considering that I had to change my idea like five times. <laughs> so first it was going to be about murals. And then we, it was going to be about um, the creation of murals, but it was a lot harder than I thought. And then we were trying to find out the oldest mural, and we went to so many like libraries and databases, and we couldn't find that. And then we tried to figure out who did the most murals, but once again, it was hard to find that kind of information. So we kind of like just scrapped the whole mural idea, and then we had help to um, figure out a different idea, and someone suggested uh, we should do numero uno as a, <laughs> a profile. There you go, a profile. profile. Yeah, <laughs> profile article. Yeah, I was like, yeah, why not? So I, I had no idea who they were. I didn't know they was part of music. Yeah. Yeah, and, and for a hot second, we were gonna profile um, a different business. So it was a long, a long process to get yeah. to numero. Numero group. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your research? Um, the research easy because it was once you search up numero group, they had their own website. They had so many ways to find them. Had Facebook, you know, their own little <laughs> Wikipedia page too. It was like amazing, amazingly easy to get. Yeah. Um, was it as easy to get an interview? No, it was not <laughs> as easy to get an interview because, um, well, one of the founders, Rob, he was actually out of Little Village. He was somewhere else doing business stuff. I didn't ask what kind, but uh, so I had to get the interview through email. And he took, it took so long to get it just because he was so busy and I didn't want to really bother him because he didn't have like much time. Mm -hmm. So today I barely got the questions. <laughs> so I'm working on the paper right now. Yeah. So <laughs> it was just a lot of work. But you got them. You're doing it. It's happening. Yeah. It's stressful. <laughs> um, can you tell us why you think this is um, an important topic? For Little Village? I think this is an important topic because uh, I never heard of Numero Group, and they even said that they don't think they're as well known in Little Village, and they've been here for like 15 years, and I have never heard of like a recording session. Yeah. Like, recording group within Little Village. Why did they say that they uh, weren't as well known in Little Village? Because I, I think they mentioned that they don't sell anything directly to customers, right? Yeah, they um, kind of like sell like with in other stores like whole, wholesales and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of hard to find them. Cool. Um, what are some of the highlights of the process or maybe the interview? 
that I that I'm actually getting it done. <laughs> that I actually got it done. And I think the whole like interview process was an interesting experience considering I usually would have to go to someone and record their voice and I'd be like, Oh, I think I'm all fitted like fitted fitted nervous. <laughs> like I'm nervous. <laughs> yeah. So I think it was easier through email, at least communication kind of communication wise for me because I wasn't didn't seem as nervous. Yeah. And this was your first experience with doing a written piece, right? Oh yeah, this is my first experience doing a written piece like this and it was stressful. <laughs> <laughs> really really stressful for me. You fooled me. You keep so calm and cool and collected. Um that's the trick. <laughs> <laughs> Do you uh want to set up our clip for us today? Yeah, so since our interview was through email, we couldn't exactly get a clip, so instead I picked the song that they did re- uh, re-release with, it was in the 80s, I believe. And the band is called White Zombie, and the song is actually called Gentleman Junkie, which I thought was a cool title. Cool. <laughs> it's like a rock music, so yeah. Next, we have Tanya and Jocelyn. Hey guys, so um, I'm Jocelyn, and my mentor is Tanya. Hi, I'm Tonia, and I'm a reporting fellow with City Bureau. Um, so our, in our topic today was, um, well, for the interview was Villapalooza, um, and a little bit about it is it's just a little village festival where they play music. They have um, 
little shows like they paint over there. They sometimes have skaters, like really cool. So would you say it's kind of like a um, the little villages version of Lollapalooza? Then? Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Okay. So why did you want to write about uh, Via Palooza? Um, so I myself am very interested in music, and um, a lot of my family is too. So I've kind of wanted to look for something where if they wanted to give it a shot, they could try it out. So. Okay. And when you're saying try to give it a shot, who do you mean? Um, so my grandfather, he does play piano, and he does go to a lot of parties and stuff to play. So just like that kind of thing. Okay. So tell me about the process for how we decided to, um, what we decided to write about for Vida Palooza, because we didn't just write about the festival, we focused on, what did we focus on? Um, we more focused on music and like giving inspiration towards others. Like you noticed that day one, when I was having a hard time picking what I wanted to write about, um, you noticed that I was really into music, so. Mm -hmm. So we decided to do like a profile piece of Via Palooza and also specifically um, focus on Via Palooza's teen program, right? Yeah. Okay, so tell me about the process for, for that. Like who did you interview for that? Um, so the first person I actually interviewed was Teto, who is the mentor for the teen um, interns. And then I interviewed one of the interns, Marie, and I had to go back and interview Teto, Teto for some more. So. Okay, so who is Teto and why, why did you interview him? Um, so he was the mentor. He was the one who pretty much took charge of the teen program. So. Okay, and then what did you learn from Marie about um, the teen program under Via Palooza? Marie kind of taught me the reason, like, she gave me the teens insight of what it was to be a part of it. And what did she say? Just it's like so one thing you remember from your interview. I remember it um, gave her a lot of confidence and she speaks her mind now a lot more, which I think that's really great. Okay. And then w what was the research process like for Via Palooza? Um, it was definitely confusing since it was my first time, but I think it was... If you don't have experience, it's extremely hard, so yeah. But I think you did a great job with um, finding information for your topic and also reaching out and interviewing, and you also learned how to transcribe, which yeah, yeah which can be a pain. Um, so why do you think this theme is important for just the neighborhood of Little Village? Why is Villapalooza important? Um, I think it's just because like you, if you walk around Little Village, you always see like murals, and sometimes you'll see like on the walls, there's like little paintings of like um, a music note or something. So like it's it's really out there. Okay. And then any highlights of the overall process for putting the story together? Um, just the fact that it was a lot different from what I originally thought. So. In what way? Um, I th I kind of thought that you go in, or like. They'll come to meet you, mm -hmm. which it's a two-way street, honestly. And it's really cool, yeah. Okay. So do you have an audio clip that you'd like to play? I do, actually. And can you tell us what that is? Um, so it's mostly just me and Teto speaking. Um, you'll hear it, of course, but, like, yeah, that's pretty much what it's about. But 
I have friends and I let my friends call me Teto and that's T-E-T-O. I would say my, my job title is community engagement, screen printer, well in general artist, creative, and mentor. Yeah. The longest time spent controlling was, what's, what's today? July 24th. I started uh, eight years. I'll say myself. <laughs> nah, uh, so we have, so to explain a little bit about Lollapalooza, it is the Little Village Music Festival. We have a committee of people. Um, none of us do get paid for the work that we're doing. It's volunteer work, but it's the benefit of what we get back at the end. Um, it's about eight of us. We've started this in 2010, 2011. This is going to be our eighth year running. Um, and this year, we've been doing interns for the past three years so this is Villa Plus's eighth year but having interns for three years the first year we had 25 interns last year we had 50 interns and this year we have 70 interns so every year has grown um, and this is the first year we're actually renting out a studio space to host program so um, we've been around but everything is sort of coming to like a brand new feeling um, and the longest somebody's volunteered I would say volunteer uh, besides the board members is like a brand new feeling um, and the longest somebody's volunteered I would say volunteer uh, besides the board members is do, do, do. a person that sticks out because they work with me very close is Makai Diener he's been with me for four years um, and he's volunteered every year uh, for the past four years yeah but there's a handful of people I can name but he's just because I work very close with him yeah oh so the reason for starting with the uh, was because we needed we needed spaces for creatives, especially young creatives um, in the community to get together and just sort of showcase their talents um, and then take away the stigma of the community being not the brightest in Chicago um, but there's a lot of your talent here and Little Village is the youngest community in, in Chicago so that being like one of the biggest things and not having safe spaces as far as like people where people could come together and like create and talk and have the same interests and lifestyle and whatever it may be but just a space for us to get together have a fun time um and then at the next day just like enjoy it enjoy the enjoy the safe happy day that you had first start villapalooza to start villapalooza well the idea of a festival community festival in little village it's been around for years before villapalooza i can say that uh, my background a little bit was throwing backyard shows and hosting events like at friends' houses to raise funds for like equipment or art supplies or whatever maybe we had. Um, but I would say the first person, the first people to come to my head are um, Tat, um, a friend of mine, and then Hector, uh, another Hector aside from me, Hector Herrera and Elias. I can't, I don't really, I can't remember Tat's last name, but his name is Elias, but everybody knows him by Tat. Um, they were the first two people to do it, yeah. I actually came up with the name Villapalooza. How is it contrary to my life? It's given me... Um, uh, well, I put a lot of work into Villapalooza. And I never want... Like, I've, I never thought, like, I would... Not saying I would get anything out of it, but... Um, there was no pay. There was nothing. I just... I just wanted to do it. And I just... Every time I did it, there was perks to it. There was benefits as far as, like, meeting a person I could collab with. Or someone that, like, paid for a job for me to paint the mural for them or print t-shirts. Um, and it's just basically giving me everything I have right now. It's giving me the job experience I have, the maturity I have, 
the way I approach certain things, the way I'm thinking now is a lot different than it was I was thinking last year or the years before then. Um, and it's making me look towards the future and plan ahead. Um, doing this when I was 18, now I'm 25. Um, and I have a, a good following of people that trust me and I trust them as well. So I feel that with everything Milipus has given to me that um, in the next couple of years, it's gonna be something Something that looks familiar, but with a comp completely different feeling, and that feeling is going to be even greater than what it is now. But it's it's basically made my career. And we're back. Um, other than Tanya and Jocelyn working on this clip, they also had worked with another person called Cynthia. And I don't know if you guys want to explain what. Sure. So this is Tony again. Um, I also worked with Cynthia, and she was one of my mentees. And Cynthia prepared a clip um, to, sh to show what she's been working on. She isn't here right now. She's on her way to college. So um, we, her story was about the upcoming aldermanic race for the 22nd Ward. So here is her clip. My name is Cynthia Salgado. I am an incoming freshman in Coe College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. This was my first time working with Yolokali in the radio and journalism program. Um, I got to work with City Bureau on um, writing articles, and the topic for my article is the upcoming Alderman races in February of 2019. Um, getting to do this, um, I got to interview um, Fanny Diego Alvarez, and she is someone who might run for Alderman, uh, along with our current Alderman, Ricardo Munoz, also someone who is involved in the IPO and a youth member of the community. I chose this topic because I feel like it is very important um, to the community right now. Our alderman has been in office for about 25 and a half years, and now it's time for new leadership in the community, and I feel like it is very important for people to be involved and to have knowledge of what is going on. Throughout the process of writing the article, I had to look up, like, things that our alderman has done for us and um, who is choosing to run and what they have done, what they have worked in, and possibly if they will be good candidates um, for the, to run the 22nd Ward. Um, I feel like uh, a highlight of the process was that I actually got to interview our alderman and I didn't believe that was possible. Being, being from the community and basically just because I'm um, a part of the youth of the community I didn't feel like I would get the opportunity to do so but he he did agree and I got my interview and I feel like that makes the article like so much better it has um, interviews with possible candidates and the the person running our ward now and it's just something that brings everything together and the information that some people will need for um, when February comes up and we have to go and vote. I believe that another highlight of the process was during my interview with Miss um, Diego Alvarez, we talked about our society today and how although we believe that sexism is not present, whether it's in the workforce or in, in any type of other environment, um, behind a lot of things, sexism is hidden. And, you know, that's a judgment that people still hold accountable to women for multiple reasons and 
um, I feel like she really went into depth of this and that she really spoke on behalf of many win- women, not just herself. And so um, coming up, there's an audio piece. So let's listen. It's uh, Fanny Diego Alvarez. So I'm still sort of like um, taking my time with some of the people that have been doing work with me to see what the options are and what it could look like. And then I'm also thinking about myself, right? Because like making a decision like that and putting yourself out there in the world is is a big deal. For me, it's not necessarily just about me or like one candidate. It's really about like inclusion. Many times the environment for running for office is not conducive to women running. How does it feel to be a woman in this political climate? So it feels good and bad at the same time. It feels good because like um, because women we know that we we can do anything that we want to do, right? But it's challenging when the systems and the structures in place haven't been inclusive of women. And so even very minor things that people don't think about on a regular basis exclude women. It's been there's been times where where I'm in a space where I can see how me being a woman makes me stand out. And also, I think that there's more questions. You know, people question more uh, women's ability to be in positions of high power. Um, and it's not because of their ability. It's because it's rare. And so, uh, so there's just this assumption that women don't have the capacity to be in those positions, right? Sometimes, like, the machismo is very clear. So when you're in certain spaces and you hear someone, you know, give a criticism of why maybe I shouldn't run, you know, you have to listen very carefully. And if you listen very carefully, there's some tones of sexism. I think we need to do a better job at communicating just in general as human beings because I think some things get lost in how we communicate. And because, because we don't have a lot of spaces where we come together and dialogue and then work through some of those mm-hmm. questions. I think tension is good. And I think sometimes disagreement is good, right? Because that's how we learn. I don't, I, I don't think that there is a division between the old generation and new generation. I just think that sometimes we are not listening and we may be saying the exact same thing. I, I don't know if I'm going to run or not, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact that I'm thinking about it already has started a conversation. Yeah. And a lot of people have been approaching me and uh, other women, you know, and, and sometimes they want to say it out loud and sometimes they just want to tell me in my ear, right, just saying, like, I'm so happy you're doing this, right? And I think it's because we are part of a larger community, right? And a lot of times, even when we have our own opinions and ideas, we may be afraid to speak out loud because we think it might not be popular. I would love to see more people step out of their comfort zone Um, and really begin to ask themselves, like, how is it that they are uh, challenging the systems and the status quo? Um, Because I think the more that we all do that, the more we can benefit and create, you know, the the present and the future that we want. And we're back. Um, What you just heard was Cynthia's um, clip. Um, Fortunately, she's not with us here. But up next, we have... Linda and Emilio, one of our hardest workers here at Yolo Cali. Hello, my name is Emilio. Hi, I'm Linda. And um, our project or work or like thing that we did together or I did was an interview Jorge Valdivia, which is one of the managers from Radio Arte. And what is what the thing about is pretty much Radio Arte and how 
like the impact that did in Little Village in Pilsen. And it was pretty cool because a lot of people didn't do about like um, the places in Little Village, like for the youth, I think so. <laughs> but mine was for like Radio Arte because I think Radio Arte was one of um, the first things that youth was looking up to because it's like the Yolo Cali, but on an old Yolo Cali. So interview him, it was pretty, pretty nice. He was really open and it was an experience to know somebody that worked there. So what did he teach you about? Well, what did he teach you about Radio Arte and what it was? Well, he just told me like stories, like he told me memories that he had in the studio. Like he told me once that he used like the group used to get locked up in the like the studio because the the door didn't work so they had to call people to open it and like he told me that he was very shy at first when he was going on air but then he got used to it did, did any of his story talking about the memories of radio did um any of that like uh did, did it remind you of your own experience like getting started with radio it it did like my first time hearing the radio i was kind of shy and a couple of times stephanie had to tell me to speak up i still get a little shy sometimes but you know it just you get used to it yeah you're a natural now yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so what else did it, what i think um i guess what inspired you to pursue this story because i know you had a lot of other stories in mind too well like the main thing was about the youth like i feel like this year, there was a lot of young people coming to the program, and I feel like if I search out for something about the radio, they will have to uh, look up for something too, you know? So it was pretty nice. Yeah, I really like this quote on how, um, like, your look or like Radio Arte created a space for youth to tell their stories. I think that's really important. Um, like, how do, you s how do you see that? Like, how do you see your locally continuing that today? Well, I see Yolkali being like a tool for students or people that's trying to look up for open things or like um, creative things. So, and like at the end of the interview, he left a message, but like the interview was really long. It was like 10 minutes and like this one right here is only three minutes and there were parts that I felt important, but I wish I could put the thing that he said, which was, um. Because I told him what, what, what um, um, advice will you give him to the youth, and he said to be, to be open and to not be afraid, to do what you do, and like to pretty much to be yourself. Yeah, I know. I really like the words he had to say. Kind of like, like, like follow your creative expression. I think that, I think the, uh, I think you all here kind of uh, really capture that and tr try to do that through your work and your stories. Yeah. So. Moving on, we're gonna <laughs> listen to the, the story, I mean the interview, and hope you guys like it. So can you tell me what's your name and what's your current um, occupation? Yeah, my name is Jorge Valdivia and I'm a student, <laughs> grad school, yeah. I grew up in Little Village and um, my involvement in Little Village, I th would have to say, stems from Radio Arte. Uh, before Radio Arte was Radio Arte, there was a radio station in the same studio that we're in right now 
called Estadio Joven, which is part of the Boys and Girls Club of Chicago. So that's how I first became involved. And through Radio Arte, um, when we started broadcasting out of the same studio, we did a number of different shows that focused on immigration, on LGBT queer issues, women's issues. So my involvement, you know, historically has been through media and the arts. You know, I've done a lot to magnify the voices of Mexican-American Latino artists and queer Mexican-American Latino artists. Yeah, I was part of, well, I don't know, it's kind of like a weird history. I was part of the first staff of Radio Arte. Radio Arte's history was, is, uh, is interesting because it was, before it was Radio Arte, as I said earlier, it was Stadio Joven, and it belonged to the Boys and Girls Club. And the Boys and Girls Clubs of Chicago were going to put the radio station up for sale, and the museum had been approached by the advisory board of the radio station back then to see if they were interested. The museum said no. And then this outside group was going to purchase the radio station, but they called the museum president and they threatened him. And they told him um, that he had no business purchasing the radio station. And, and so he got really pissed, he got angry, and he decided to ask the board if they could purchase the radio station. So they did, they purchased the radio station, I think for I think back then it was like $12,000, the license to the radio station, which was a steal. <laughs> and the the museum was already planning a youth museum. They weren't planning to developing a radio station. So we were the accidental sort of second youth initiative of the museum. And I think the spotlight was on us for a very long time. We told stories that mattered. We allowed young people from La Vida and from Pelson to to basically tell stories that, that matter to them and we trained them in media and I think media is a powerful tool. You can use media to educate, to inform, to bring people together, to do so many different things. We empowered young people and I think that nobody else was doing what we were doing. We're the only youth operated radio station back then. There was no other radio station like that back then. So that in itself was, I think, an achievement. But to take things a step further and to talk about this, nobody was talking about um, immigration back then on the air, the way we, we were. Nobody had a show dedicated to Latinas the way we did. Nobody had, uh, Radio Arte had the first Spanish language queer show in the US, in US history, Homo Frecuencia. But it's because we were, we were youth driven. So I think that when you have a group of young people committed to social issues, uh, a lot of beautiful things can happen. Welcome back, guys. Um, I'm your host, Caesar, and you're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, broadcasting live from Studio Y, Yolokali, in Little Village. This is the season finale of season eight. Through this summer, Yolokali has worked alongside with City Bureau and writing stories about Little Village. In today's show, we're going to showcase everyone and each one of the students' written stories. Um, so basically every student partnered up with a city bureau mentor to write a story about Little Village or a story within Little Village. So up next we have Jerry, Davon, or Davin. Oh, sorry, I don't know how to, my bad. Or, and Kim. Hello everyone. <laughs> um, my name is Jerry. And I'm Kim. I'm one of the city bureau uh, reporting fellows and mentor for Jerry this cycle. And um, I'm Davon. I'm the photo fellow for City Bureau, and I've been working with Jerry and Oscar. Or Jerry. So, Jerry, you were really excited about your topic because this was something that you know a lot about, which had to do with music. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the topic for your article and how you came to the idea? 
Um, the best way that I could put it is using my own personal experiences. Um, I've been very known for attending shows across the city and also as well um, supporting artists and going to shows uh, in the South Side, uh, primarily a Little Village, but even then I've reali uh, very realized and kind of in, in my own way studied how music is able to um, help teens and youth to cope with uh, emotional issues, uh, traumas, or just everyday to day life or tragedies that they face uh, uh, personally, uh, firsthand them or from hearing from someone or just something that they experience. Um, I really wanted to capture this because it's been kind of like itching in my brain for a couple years now. Uh, and not a lot of people are realizing that uh, majority of the artists in the South Side are are using their craft and work to uh, help teens and and the youth in their neighborhoods to uh, to cope with what they see everyday everyday life uh, violence, gang on gang violence, police brutality, and just uh, personal traumas they go through home uh, either uh, with their parents or stuff that they they just need help on but they don't have the access to. Um, most of the uh, the access that they often need is uh, men mental health institutions, uh, and then within those institutions, um, they have been having like budget cuts, and they haven't had proper services to provide for uh, the public, especially for youth and for children and adults. And and I really realized that the ones that that are kind of taking over with this are, are the artists, uh, either either with their artwork or their music or or even then like murals or paintings that they often do within the 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 neighborhood. And the majority of these artists they, they know all of this and they sing about this and they write about this and they 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 host shows about this mainly because they, they see this in their neighborhoods and not a lot of people are uh shedding light into this but they're taking their first hand and first steps to, you know, to bring awareness and to just put that issue on the map out there. Uh, many of these bands, they create fundraisers for schools, for after-school programs, they raise fundraisers for literacy programs, or they often just do fundraisers for, uh, even sometimes, uh, I, I've attended a show where they did a fundraiser for a, a, a bandmate who was shot, uh, but I, I wasn't able to capture this in my story, but I just know this from experience. Um, and and I attended one of this show, and uh, we were we were raising funds uh, for this uh, band member that uh, wasn't able to cover the bills. So we sh we decided, oh, we should throw a show. And oftentimes, people throw shows for to when they throw shows, they often have a theme. Uh, usually, it's uh, against police uh, police brutality, uh, uh, the lack of uh, uh, bringing awareness on. Uh, uh, disrespecting women, that's another topic that one of the bands covered. Uh, and majority of these bands, they, 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 they often listen to their fans because they're, they're, you know, they're their friends or their neighbors. They're their neighbors and they, they often see them uh, at school or at work or even just then at shows. And, and it's something that kind of bothered me that uh, the city doesn't really take care of its people. It's usually just the people taking care of its people. Um, but yeah, it's something that I, I've been wanting to talk about and bring to light recently. And um, how have you been using like photography with that and everything, using that extra medium to extend your story, um, to supplement what you're writing about? Uh, I've been using photography in uh, this again. This is more of a personal take on it. Uh, I didn't start shooting 
or using photography as my medium for art or as my craft since I want to say mid 2016 or late 2016. Uh, I was going through a lot of issues at home and just personal issues and oftentimes, you know, it's it's a very cliche thing for, you know, for youth and teens to uh, just drown themselves and submit to drugs and alcohol. And, and it's something that I was kind of leading towards too, but I was like, uh, this is not the right path for me and I don't, I don't, I don't eat this. And it's not, I, I was, I would, the good thing about it is that I was very much aware of my surroundings and much aware of what I am capable of. So it, it did took me a while, but even then I, I, I realized and noticed this firsthand. And, and the only thing that was helping me was going to these shows. And then I would often see people, they were facing similar issues and it's like, Yo, we're you know we're in, we're in we're in trouble, but we don't have to fall for this, and we don't have to submit to 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 what's you know you know something that we can just get through a liquor store or someone else. But even then, it's something that uh, people don't realize that it's it's like plaguing in the community, and it's oftentimes people don't want to talk about it because it's like oh, it's something minimal. It's it's just a phase. It's gonna pass by. It's it's you know it's nothing important. And oftentimes, uh, the only times that people do care is when mass shootings happen or uh, uh, like someone commits suicide and it's someone, you know, important. Or, and it's just only the media only sheds light on this when it's something that they want to hear, not something that they don't really care about. Um, and, I, and I use photography in a way to kind of cope and open up to people. But yeah, and, and oftentimes within photography, it's, it's it seems like a job or just a, a hobby that you don't talk as often, but oftentimes in photography, you do have to talk and to speak, to meet artists, to meet people, to, to network, to connect, and to just able to speak out. And even then, it's just uh, through photography, it, it has given me the, the ability to open up more and the ability to, to just... Uh, to speak about things within people, uh, even if it's just through through a lens, it's something that uh, I learned a lot through photography. I wanted to ask you really quickly because this is a topic that you did know a lot about. What surprised you the most in your reporting? Uh, <laughs> one thing that surprised me the most is that the artists were very aware of their surroundings and their friends, and th they kind of they they get affected by 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 this too cuz uh one band that I was able to interview uh they're uh they're called through and through they're from uh, it's a southside hardcore punk band uh from little village um and oftentimes the first couple of shows where they 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 started they they uh they mentioned to me that they were free they were just for fun for friends and they just wanted to play music to play music and oftentimes uh, it got to the point where it got serious and they realized like oh people are actually listening to our lyrics they're singing to our lyrics and they 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 saw that their supporters are able to relate and uh you know uh connect within the, their music um and oftentimes they they were shocked because they were like oh i thought it was only us but even then it's it's something that is happening you know ac across the city sometimes or even then they they realize that uh, when they they host these shows, they're realizing that the kids that go to these shows are 10 to 11, 12 years old. The youngest kid that I've ever seen at a show, he was 12 years old, and he was already like in the pit, you know, releasing his emotions and feelings. And uh, it, it's crazy to to know that that bands like them, uh, they they're able to connect with you know such a very young uh, crowd, and it's something that kind of affected me too, because I I didn't start going to shows until like 15, 16. But even then, it it's something that it kind of affected me too. 
And then what were you, what did you want to share with us? Um, you had, you had talked to one of the bands that you mentioned that you wanted to, you wanted to play some audio from that. Uh, so up next, I have a clip uh, from the band Through and Through. I was only able to interview the lead singer. Uh, he's the one that manages majority of everything for the band except the funding. Uh, one of his other bandmates uh, does the funding, but he's he's very uh, knowledgeable and very uh, experienced on on with the topics and themes that they talk about in their music as well as uh, as what's going on in the village and. Uh, it's I think I believe it's a three-minute clip. Uh, he just introduces his band what they are what they do and and their model. Yeah uh, Ruben Lino Garza jr. I play in through and through I think the topics we cover are definitely personal feelings uh, I definitely like to write about what's going on inside my head and you know I'm one of those people who believes that you know people have this whole thing of saying oh I, I believe music helps me get away but I believe that music actually helps me solve my problems I use music to face reality and those realities sometimes are very harsh like police brutality in our neighborhood where we're from definitely uh, the, those songs do point out the street aspect of us, of our band, because we uh, we grew up with cops hating us and we hated cops back, you know, and uh, we grew up with graffiti, we grew up with gangs, we grew up with drugs, we grew up with alcohol, but at the end of the day, we also had very great, a very great family support that kept us away from that stuff as well and let us see that there's a lot more better things out there and with their support we were able to find music and that's why I feel that our music reflects on how we grew up in the neighborhood and what we go through personally you know it, Little Village is a colorful place and a beautiful place during the day but at night it's when it, stuff happens like gang shootings is something that happens and then you have cops who basically are another gang but they're funded by the government and they don't give the cops don't care about us they don't want us to to prevail and i feel sometimes that that whatever is like street political or or in the neighborhood like what's being done is not really for the people but yet it's done just out of convenience oh yeah so across Chicago, what we see a lot, and not just in Little Village or the South Side, but everywhere, all suddenly there's, there's. Well, I mean, Chicago's always been a rough place, but now, like more than ever, the shootings are getting, are getting, the number of shootings is growing. The, how would I say, uh, people, people just being very nasty towards each other is like starting to grow more disrespecting women is starting to be a thing and then you also have these people who are trying to stand up for something through the internet but they don't really do anything about it you know they you know they say they protest but they're not really out there just they're not out there finding solutions they're just out there complaining and i feel that uh that's something that's like a big issue because we want things to get done in the city but yet we're not willing to go out there and do them We'd rather just sit at home, 
watch whatever's on Netflix and then complain about it through our phones. So that's like a big, I think the big issue is that. Welcome back guys. Um, we have three more students before we wrap up our show. One of them being Oscar, who also worked with Kim and David. Hello, my name is Oscar. And I'm also part of Yellow College Journalism and Radio Program, Your Story, Your Way. And once again, I'm Kim, one of Oscar's mentors with City Bureau. And I'm still Davon, and I'm still the photo fellow, <laughs> and I'm still helping Oscar. Um, so Oscar, your article was also something that came from your really, really um, enthusiastic interest in technology. And you noticed a lot of things about how technology was reshaping how people interact with one another. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the specific thing you focused on for your story? Well, for my story, I, my article asks, well, for my story, my article asks a question. How has technology reshaped communication in Little Village? Looking more into the business and tech side when we're using calling cards or sending money. Um, to be honest, I chose to bring this topic to light because it's an important subject for me, and I believe that everyone should have choices when deciding to use a service. They should be well aware of their alternatives and the benefits each brings to the table. For instance, WhatsApp offers free voice calls to anyone with an account. Essentially, all you need is an internet connection. And how did you go about uh, doing your research for this story and finding out how people's habits were being impacted by technology versus the options that they've always had for a long time in the neighborhood? Well, when I began my research, I started by asking myself questions, and that's when I first started to realize that what I needed was the opinions of our own Little Village locals. I was fortunate enough to interview two mature individuals and ask them about their preferences when calling and or sending money to family and friends in Mexico. Now, they were not at all reluctant to share their opinions. I was actually pleased with the responses to be late. Um, soon after, actually, I reached out to employees from local businesses related to the services that I chose to cover. And it wasn't long until I had more than enough data to wrap up my article. Did this inspire you to want to look um, deeper into some issues that you didn't get to cover? This actually really inspired me to look deeper into it. I mean, what intrigued me the most about it was the willingness I got from speaking with people. They were excited to share and express their views, and that sparked a um, that's, that spark they gave, or rather the positivity um, rubbed off on me. Just engaging myself in the community and taking a look into the perspective of, other, of others was more than enough motivation. So it sounds like the interviews were a big highlight and kind of getting out there and talking to uh, individuals. Yes, just going out there and speaking with others, just learning from others, you know, Everybody has an opinion on the matter, whether or not they prefer you know, to just go to a store for the convenience it provides, or if they just go online because they like to do things on their own. It all just varies from person to person. What was surprising about your research, too, is um, I, I was expecting to hear that technology had really completely changed the way people do business, but you actually found that's not entirely the case. No, not at all. What I believed was that the internet was going to take over business. Some actually theorized that Amazon's gonna end up taking over all you know, consumers because of what they, the service they offer and you know, the two-day delivery and whatnot. I mean, it's so easy to find things online now, but when you look at brick and mortar stores, they offer something that online stores don't offer. And in this article, we explore the conveniences that come with and the you know, human interaction that you get when you walk into a said store to receive a service. So calling cards, if you still have those in your wallet, they're worth something? Oh, you better believe it. <laughs> Some people are very, uh, they conservatively cling to their ideas. Some people rather just go to the store and get the calling card instead of having to, um, you know, what some people would say is set up all this mumbo jumbo or whatnot, you know, all these accounts. I guess it all depends on who you're speaking with. 
Did you find that uh, there was a big divide as far as age or other kind of demographics? Well, from what I've gathered, I've assumed, I can assume rather, I've actually assumed before getting to my answer, but I, it seems to pretty much line up with what I thought originally, where it seems that the older demographic seems to cling to that more conservative idea of, you know, what they need is at the store. They don't need to be online all the time because you know how certain people claim that we're going to be sucked up by the internet or whatnot, or our screens always in, where our face is always in front of our screens, certain things like that. So I guess it's, uh, I guess it's their way of like fighting against that or whatnot. And uh, which way do you prefer? Do you know? Do you like the the manual method, or do you like? Uh, well, in in the article, I'm sorry. <laughs> in the article, we explore the uh, we explore the opinions of those expressed in the area, and a lot of people here do seem to be clinged um, to their conservative way. You know, like where they go to the store, brick and mortar, and whatnot. In my opinion, or rather, what my uh, preference is, is to go online. If I wanted to, uh, for instance, order a movie, I'd probably have it delivered by Netflix. If I wanted to uh, you know, call a family member, I'd probably do it over Facebook Messenger, just something, you know, instantaneous. I don't mind going uh, online to do so. <laughs> and then for your clip, what were you going to share with us from your reporting? Well, for my clip, I was actually interviewing the two individuals I mentioned earlier, were actually some mothers whom I worked closely lo uh, along with. We actually had a um, you know, reporting group whom we uh, worked alongside with. Um, you get to hear about them sometime soon. But uh, yeah, you know, you get to hear their opinions on uh, you know, what it is that they prefer in terms of calling cards and sending money. And um, you know, just um, how they went on about it then and at that time and day. ¿Por qué compraste esas tarjetas te telefónicas y con quién te contactaste? Uh, porque en ese tiempo el, el teléfono de casa para una llamada internacional era muy cara, entonces prefería comprar este las tarjetas de, pues depende el, mi, mi posibilidad económica, podía comprar una desde la más barata o hasta la más cara eh, para comunicarme con mi familia en México, especialmente mis padres y mis hermanos. ¿Qué otros <risa> métodos de comunicación usa? ¿Otros programas o servicios? ¿Tiene alguna preferencia? Ah, pues ahora uso ya mi teléfono celular o tengo mi WhatsApp o en el Face. <risa> ya hay muchas este, maneras de cómo co comunicarnos sin tener que gastar dinero, entonces está bien. O dinero extra ya con el pago del teléfono es suficiente. ¿Y hubo métodos anteri anteriores de transferir, uh, transferencia de dinero que utilizó, pero sí. ya no lo hacen? Sí. Antes, este, a veces teníamos familia que podía ir este, a México, entonces mandábamos el dinero con ellos. Pero ahora ya es más fácil porque hay muchas casas o hasta incluso en el teléfono, este, la línea de Zoom, también se puede uno mandar el dinero y es más barato. ¿En qué situaciones transferías moneda y qué esperarías pagar en horarios? ¿Honorarios? ¿Será? Honorarios, ah. sí. <coughs> ¿En qué situación? Pues algo difícil porque uh, aquí uno trabaja, aquí tenemos la familia y todo, entonces sí es un poco difícil, tenemos que ahorrar extra para poder ayudar a nuestra familia en México. Y este, el, el tipo de cambio, pues siempre uno quiere que le paguen a uno más, pero no siempre es así, entonces pues a como lo tengan, no, no podemos este, pedir mucho porque es a como ellos lo pongan. 
¿Cuándo fue la última vez que compró una tarjeta de llamada para hacer una llamada telefónica internacional? Uy. Hace que será. Tres años. Tres años. ¿Dónde compraba usualmente sus tarjetas telefónicas y cuánto costaban? En una tienda, en la tienda me podía costar de 5 a 10 a 20 dólares. ¿Por qué, compraste esta, ¿Por qué compraste estas tarjetas telefónicas y con quién se comunicaba? ¿Por qué las compré? Pues para hablar a mis parientes y con quién me comunicar, con mis hermanas, mis sobrinos. ¿Tenía alguna preferencia? Método, pues no, el teléfono y ahora actualmente, pues, los teléfonos este celulares, por Messenger, todo ahora ya son puras videollamadas las que hago. Welcome back, guys. We now have Yolo and Olivia. Um, so, um, my name is Yolo and... And I am Olivia. Um, I'm a fellow with City Bureau. And I'm with YOLO, um, one of the best people I think I've met all this year. Yeah, got some applause for that. You earned that. Thank you. <laughs> so do you want to talk a little bit about your article? Why don't you start with how you came up with the idea, what you wanted to talk about at first? Um, so my article is about immigration. And um, throughout this, the two years with this whole administration, I've noticed um, that immigration is just something that's like really close to my heart because um, I know a lot of people who are immigrants and yeah. Okay, so um, do you want to talk about the process of going from kind of that, like our discussions about what the political climate is and the experience of undocumented people to actually finding someone um, in the Little Village area to talk about this? Um, so I interviewed um, Sonia Orozco from Enlance, Chicago, and um, she gave me a lot of information about um, some things that you can do when people or, you know, um, police or ICE may come to your house and try to get you, get try to deport you, and yeah. Um. So, um, Tell us a little bit about the conversation that you two had. So I asked her uh, multiple questions about uh, from how many years she's been working to Enlance to what's her biggest inspiration, inspiration, no, um, to. Her like memorable moments, yeah. right, on the job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she gave me a lot of, I don't know, it was just somewhat just cool. It was really cool. Um, my, my favorite part of the conversation was actually towards the end, because you had all of these questions kind of made. But then towards the end, you just you had a, just a regular conversation, and you just asked some things about her life. Do you want to talk about the story that she shared about how she got interested in social work? Yeah, so in the beginning when she was in college, she wanted to be a doctor because she liked to help out people. But then a situation happened in between where her father got um, very ill and then um, he, he needed to go through a very um, deep surgery and he was convinced, but everyone was somewhat sure that he wasn't gonna die, but he was like, I am gonna die. 
So he wanted to make sure that um, there was someone he could talk to about who could he put in his will and stuff. So then that's how she was like, I'm interested in this. And yeah. Mm -hmm. And she's definitely in that kind of role, right? Of yeah. being able to help people and families in the Little Village area. So that's a perfect setup for the clip. Do you want to say just a little bit about what it's about? So this clip is about um, um, me talking to her about, I don't know, some questions she answered and about um, some youth and some problems she went through and also um, a mom that she talked to. All right, let's listen. What's the most inspiring part of your job? Be empowered. Um, I've worked with a lot of parents. The reason I brought up the Club de Reporteros, I've worked with a, like a few of those moms. And um, I worked with them last summer on like different projects and like organizing and education organizing. Um, but I've, I've very recently worked with two moms who, um, who like did a storytelling project with DePaul. And it was something similar like this, right? Like they told their, their, um, they told her like immigrant story and then they also told their story about like what it's like to be an immigrant mom in the u.s and um raising a child in in the public school system and also like organizing in the public school system and i remember seeing them at the beginning of the process and at the end when they presented and like just seeing how empowered they were and like them taking leadership and like that's super inspiring and i draw a lot a lot of strength from community members um especially parents and youth like um, cause you can see how they were at the beginning. Like, I don't want to talk about this. I'm going to have to become out about that. I am undocumented or that I was at some point. Right. Even, even at that. Right. Um, and how shy and timid they were. And then after, um, we went through a lot of like processes and things like that, that they were so empowered and they like own their story and they're like, yes, I am an immigrant mom. And yes, I do live in little village and I'm organizing in, in like Chicago public schools and, this is who I am, you know, and like it's so like inspiring. Welcome back, guys. Um, before we wrap up our show, we have one last student, um, Marie. Um, so this show we have been we have been talking about um, showcasing each and every one of the students' um, written stories, and all of them have had wonderful stories to talk about about Little Village, um, from a sushi worker. Um, and a bunch of other stuff that uh, interested them. And yeah, uh, we'll be right back after this song. Welcome back, guys. We are on our last guest for today before we wrap up our show. Um, here we have Marie and Sammy. Hi. Hi, I'm Sammy. I'm a reporter fellow with City Bureau. And I'm Marie, and I, I'm over here at Yellow Kali. I'm one of the Yellows, as y'all like to call me, or <laughs> us. So, title of the article, what, what's your title of the article? Um, I actually wanted to name it, like, Where Are My Minutes? Like the reason, like behind where are my minutes is because uh, 
how I know how special education goes. It's like it's based on like time. It's like how much time the teacher spends with the student and like they how um, basically kind of time in and time out. And the less and less minutes that a teacher spends with a student is whether or not the sub, not substitute special education teacher leaves. And that's the n number one reason why they leave because they don't have enough minutes with the students in the classroom, so they leave. That's why I want to name it more specifically, where are my minutes, because there's so many special education teachers out there that are just leaving schools. So, yeah. So as we were working on this article about special education teachers, why did you want to do this specifically? Because we had like a bunch of ideas, right? Yeah, we had like, what is it, like environmental, and then I know there was another one, I can't remember, but like, oh no, yeah, mental health and stuff like that, but I really wanted to focus on this kind of subtext, not subtext, subcategory of mental health, uh, of special education. Mm -hmm. um, I think the reason why I wanted to do this because uh, I was in special education in eighth grade from preschool to eighth grade, and then I graduated with an IEP, not IEP, out of IEP. <laughs> Um, and I kind of feel like the reason why I like wanted to touch upon it, even though I'm out of special education, was because I had a lot of friends who were still in it, and then a lot of like, and then I also had like a really nice teacher who I really like, Miss Chang, the interview, um, who like you know also left my school. So I, I wanted to touch upon it because like just like regular teachers, these teachers are also important. Mm -hmm. um, so talk to me about. Miss Chang, oh, can you give me like one of your favorite memories of her as oh, your teacher? Oh my goodness, there's like so many. Uh, I think the number one memory that I did touch upon was uh, when she taught us how to say what are those in Mandarin. Like she taught the whole class how to say it and I thought it was funny because I'm over here like bawling because everyone's just saying and looking at everybody's Jordans and Nikes like what are those? I can't remember how you say it now but like it was funny when they were saying it. I'm like y'all couldn't say hello or goodbye or I love you or like a cuss word but like nah just what are those that that had to be one of them yeah so um I think we wanted to focus on Miss Shang because of your relationship to her but um also when we were doing the story we wanted to uh talk to a teacher that was specifically removed from Little Village, um, who was a special education teacher. Yeah. Um, and if we like look back at the research, um, she was the one who left. Yeah, she was the one teacher who left um, your elementary school. Yeah, Sprite, Sprite. Elementary, yeah. Which um, I think was kind of sad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how was the process for you of creating this article? I know we had so many stories and then like the next week we had like our person because you knew Ms. Chang, so that wasn't hard. Yeah. But what what did you feel like was the hardest part? I think like, oh God, just like trying to look back at it, just like so many hard parts. Uh, I think trying to like look up the questions or trying to do the questions. I mean, we had a flow chart, which was great. Thank you for that. Yeah, um, yeah, I wanted to make sure that, because when you're answering somebody, it is really hard to think of follow-up questions, so what I try to do is guess what somebody is going to say and make up questions based on that. I'm usually the person who tries to think um, minutes ahead, ahead of somebody yeah. um, to kind of, I don't know, I think that's always been like me as a person though. I used to play sports and mind games and stuff like that with people, so. Okay. 
somewhat evil but <laughs> yeah but that's that's kind of my my thing um so the questions was hard for you yeah like just making up the questions that and actually doing the interview itself mm. that was hard and then what is it uh what is it the script not the script the transcript mm-hmm. that was also hard you know just doing it because there's so much dialogue and me stuttering and lisping uh i had to say that was the hardest part but I thank you for the, um, what is it, for the flowchart. Because, like, I didn't think she would say that, like, oh, it was terrible. Because I thought, like, she's such a nice teacher. Like, I didn't think it would be terrible for anything. But, like, now that I think about it, I'm like, yeah, teachers have it pretty hard. So I'm glad that we came up with that, uh, with that possibility. Yeah. yeah. And the importance. I think we kind of touched, uh, told, say, we kind of said already why it was important. Because. Yeah, I think also with that, it's just that this kind of came up at like a very at a good time that we were talking about this because um, I remember WBZ Chicago did an investigation on special education and how students were not getting the time that they deserved in the class and how that impacted students um, who are diverse learners yeah and then what is it the head of special education did something shady and then left yeah so yeah, <laughs> yeah, that happens a, a lot. <laughs> um, and also, it made it was so difficult tracking down data because people didn't want to like tell me like, "Hey, this is how many teachers ha- have been removed from Little Village," yeah. um, which we already knew that so many teachers have been removed. We just needed the exact numbers to prove it. Well, thankfully, we we did get that data. Yeah. Shout out to Chicago's teacher union because they were like, "Here's the info." Um, highlights so yeah even though you knew miss chang like what was like the perfect moment for you in the interview that it felt good to do the interview uh i would have to say the ending where like i asked her like what student stands out in your career and she said you and i'm just like crying like you know trying not to cry but like it's really hard because like when your favorite teacher tells you that you were the like most standing out student in their career i'm just like crying i'm like thank you miss chang and she's like i couldn't like i'm mean, it was such an honor to like you know be your teacher and i'm over here crying like oh god it was emotional i like that part like oh this is worth it this is worth it this is the reward this is yeah and it was good to re- um reconnect with her because you graduated from school and then she also was removed from the community yeah i mean she went to another school which was pretty cool but like um, when she went into that school, another special education teacher left as well. When she went in, someone went out. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, when will the cycle end? Yeah, when, when will people actually invest in special education is the next big yeah. question. Because um, it doesn't seem that people care. And I think uh, when I was reading the transcript from Ms. Chang, she also felt like that too. Like no one cared about what happened to special education students. Yeah, and like also how she was saying it, like um, to like kind of like progress like that learning as well. Like to get them out. Like it's good to take them out of the uh, classroom, the genetic classroom in general, um, and then you know have one on one. But like kind of like keeping them there trapped. Like the way she said it, like throw away the key, and so that they they can't move from where they are. They just stay in that one place. Like, I also feel like they can do better in that as well. Not only bringing more teachers back, but, like, helping or, like, progressing or I don't even know the word for it, but, like, yeah, they're changing the way that you teach special education students. Because, 
yeah, kind of like taking them out. It kind of feels like segregation. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So I think we can play that audio clip of the, what is it? Of the, the, the interview? Yeah, there we go. Mm -hmm. Hope you guys enjoy. <laughs> Um, because I felt like there was inequality in Chicago about who's getting a good education versus, you know, funding for schools. And then also special education, particularly because there was a shortage in Chicago. There's not enough special ed teachers to go around. And I, I felt like that kind of population of students who had disabilities and who just need extra support should get that extra support you know we can't really we can't really count those kids out which i think i think chicago did they do they, they still do when we talk about education in chicago they don't talk about special education and that really bothers me you know and the program that i did to become a special ed teacher was a fast track alternative certification program and and back then it was called chicago teaching fellows mm -hmm. and they don't have that yeah it's called ctf um now it was like basically you apply for the program and then you do this like basically really intense curriculum work during the summer and then they you start teaching and they start teaching summer school that same summer with mm -hmm. about maybe like yeah like six to eight weeks of training it was super intense mm -hmm. yeah and then so with that program you could teach during that year so you did that summer training and then you could get a job in cps and while you're teaching that first year you're also taking your grad school classes to get your actual certification. Does that make sense? So there's an actual, there are actual special education aides, right? They're called SICAs or parents. Um, and I've always been just a regular special ed teacher. Now as a special ed teacher, I could have different roles, right? So my role could be like in a separate classroom, teaching the class. My role could be working with another teacher in the gen ed classroom, like me and Mr. Lopez. Even though I was kind of like assisting him, it's more like my role was to work with the kids and he was the lead teacher. But there's different ways of being a special ed teacher. And this epilepsy was a combination. I had my own classroom this past year for some math students. And then I also work with other teachers in the general education classroom for students in math and science. So you combination of both. So you, com okay, combination of both. Like, do you feel like, yeah. so do you feel like what's happening, like, like in the community is kind of, like, affecting what's going on in the classroom and... Um, you mean, like, in terms of special education cuts? Yes. Exactly. Absolutely. 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 Um, what's happening now is that, um, now, I've always been a teacher who supports an inclusive setting, right? That means kids who have IEPs are in the regular classroom with everyone else. And they just need someone else to help them when they need some some support, right? Yes. And then there are kids, and I've always liked that setting for students. I don't like them being separated. I felt like at Spry, those kids who were in like separate the resource or separate classroom yeah. were kind of just trapped in there, and they would never get out. And I was pushed for them to like be with other kids because you know, yeah, because at the end of the day, as as a high schooler and a teenager and like an adult. You're not going to be locked away in a separate room. You have to be able to work with other people. Welcome back, guys. Um, this concludes our show, and we're wrapping it up. Um, you're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 Lumpin' Radio, broadcasting live from Studio Y, Yolo Cali, and Little Village. Yeah, we actually um, 
broadcasted this radio show in our living living room space in Yolo Cali because we had such a big group. And yeah, um, without the help of the city bureau mentors, uh, it would have been ma it would have been made possible that our stories would have came out this awesome, and we would have had such a great show without them. So a big thank you to them. So yeah, um, today you heard so many many stories um, about Little Village, written by our beautiful, beautiful, wonderful students at Yolo Cali. So thank you. Thanks, thank you to them for providing content. And yeah, um, I've been your host, Caesar, and we'll see you back next season. Uh, I just want to say one last comment. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Yolo. She's not here, I think, right now. Um, but she would often bring cookies to the class. And those were very helpful. <laughs> they would, we would always be like, it's hot outside. We would always be down. And she would just come to class with cookies. I want to give a shout out to her. But yeah, thank you. Oh, my name is Jerry. And my name is Caesar, and we'll see you next season. Bye. Hello, it's me. I haven't heard from you in a while. I hope it's because you're listening and enjoying our amazing, outstanding, terrific, wonderful, inspiring, delightful, funny, breathtaking, amazing, astonishing, highly amazing production. If not, you should listen to our radio show, What's Up, again. In the meantime, we'll be working on the next one here in Lumpin' Radio. So stay tuned to our next amazing, outstanding, terrific, wonderful, inspiring, delightful, funny, breathtaking, astonishing, highly amazing broadcast. I hope that you are informed about the awesome parts of life so that you will have a splendid day. Don't forget to listen to us on SoundCloud at Yolokali, on social media like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Tumblr at Yolokali, or visit at yolokaliartsreach.org for more. We are the robots. We are the robots.